0: Amen. Grab your Bibles if you have them. If you don't have one, uh, you're welcome to borrow one that are in the uh, the book racks underneath the chair in front of you. We'll put a lot of the scriptures up on the screen. We want to put eyes and ears on the Word of God today. Open with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you've been trekking with us for the last few weeks, you know that we've been uh, slowly moving through this book. Of First Thessalonians, we call it a book, but it was a letter, one of the first letters that the apostle Paul wrote, and he's writing this letter to a church that he loves, that he's excited about, a church that God is moving through, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna try to finish out First Thessalonians chapter five here, but uh, I just want to start by where we began. I want to go back to chapter one for a moment and read a verse to you in case you. Missed all of the series, and this is the only week you get to be a part of, you're gonna to want to hear this verse. This is Paul talking about this incredible, powerful church that was right there in the capital city of Thessalonica, straddling the Ignatia Highway, the first highway really of modern history, and 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 they, they trafficked goods as far as the east is from the west. People came in and out of this city all of the time, and it had a strategic location for the advancement of the gospel. Paul's hope was that if the gospel can land here and the church can be established here, it can go everywhere. And we learn in chapter 1 of just how that happened. Listen to these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. It says, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. Paul was saying everywhere that we go, people have already heard about you guys. The message has spread everywhere about the faith that you have. And the incredible thing about the faith that they have is that Paul said, you followed our example. And in following our example, you became model. And so as we've looked into this text for the last few weeks, we're looking at this church as an example for us, but we're also looking at Paul, who was an example for them. And I want to just say, again, I've I've said this before in this series, but uh, hear my heart. The goal is not to build an attractional worship experience so that people would say, wow, we would love to go there. The goal is not to create programs Uh, that draw uh, people in from the community. The goal is not to do any of those things in the natural. The goal is to be like an attractional person. Did you ever notice in Jesus' ministry that everywhere that he went, the multitudes crowded around him. Everybody wanted to be around Jesus. And so our goal and our hope as a church is not to try to just be uh, attractional. Our goal is... To have people attracted to Jesus. When they come in and they worship with us. When they rub shoulders with us individually outside of the, uh, the corporate church gathering. That there's something in your life. There's something in my life that people just say, man, there's something about them. There's something they've got that I'm missing. I, I want to be around them. I want to be a part of what's going on there. That's what the church in Thessalonica had. Now, Last week... We talked about the second coming of the Lord, because in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, Paul begins to explain to them about the coming of the Lord. He clarified some issues about the rapture of the church, and we don't have time to go into all those things today, but if you're curious about those, I would encourage you, open up your Bible and read First Thessalonians chapter 4. Chapter 5, he moves into talking about the second coming of the Lord, which is different From the rapture of the church. And the reason he was doing this for them was to bring balance and clarity in the church. Now, last Sunday night, for those of you that came back for our uh, study in the word on Sunday nights from six to seven, which, by the way, we're doing again tonight. Last Sunday night, we dove a little deeper into that text to understand the reason that Paul had to write to them about these. Apparently, here's what was happening. The people in Thessalonica, in the church, We're so excited about Jesus coming that they didn't care about anything else anymore. Now, we ought to be excited that Jesus is coming, but not to a fault that we become careless about everything else. You know, I've heard the statement before, maybe you have too, of people saying that you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You ever heard that statement before? Apparently, that's what was happening in Thessalonica. They quit going to work. They quit you know, paying their bills. They were just kind of, just, hey, Jesus is coming. It doesn't matter. Don't, don't go back to school next semester. It doesn't matter. Jesus is coming. There's no sense in investing in tomorrow. Jesus is coming. And so, uh, thank God they were excited Jesus is coming. But, but Paul said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys, you, you're, you're so focused on the coming of the Lord that you're not living for Christ today. So I guess it's possible that somebody could be that way. But what I've found... And maybe you've found to be true, more often than that scenario, is that people tend to be so earthly-minded that they're not doing any heavenly good. And so there's a balance, and that's what Paul is trying to do in this letter. He's trying to bring the church back to balance, to where we're not just focused on the here and now, that, that we lose sight of the blessed hope of the church and the future glory that is ours and that awaits us, but yet that we're not so focused on the coming of the Lord, that we're not serving him today. Paul found that balance in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, when he said these words. Listen to these words. He's walking that line when he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, as long as I'm living this life, all of it is for Jesus. I want to live every day to the fullest, to the glory of God. But if this life should end, I'm not going to despair in that reality because to die is even better. Now, he he wasn't obviously looking and longing for death, but he was looking beyond the grave to the hope of glory. And that's what he was telling the church in Thessalonica about. He was saying, listen, don't be despairing about the future And yet, don't be so anticipating of the future that you forget to occupy today. Here's what Jesus said about it. He told a parable in Luke 19, verse 13. And we won't go there today for time's sake. But he gives a parable of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And and in that parable, he says in verse 13 of Luke 19, he says, Occupy until I come. That means until the Lord comes back, Until you stand in his presence, either by way of the rapture or by way of the grave, occupy until I come. Be a good steward. Uh, Dr. George Wood, he's our general superintendent of the Assemblies of God, he told a story one time that really just drove this point home for me. When he was a young man, uh, if I remember the story correctly, he was wrestling with the the question of should he just jump right into the ministry and, and... and just try to live for God every day and, and do his best? Or should he go into seminary? And he had people telling him that going back to school is a waste of time. Uh, because, you know, the Lord's coming. And basically they were saying, you know, that don't, don't waste your time doing that. And, and as he was wrestling with that, the Lord brought something back to his memory from his childhood. He remembered from his childhood, his dad uh, used to raise chickens. And he remembered watching his dad one time... Uh, Chop a chicken's head off Sorry if this is a little graphic His story, not mine and, and cut that chicken in half And what he remembered Is that when he looked inside that chicken As a little boy What he was amazed at Is that he didn't just see an egg He looked. There's there's tomorrow's egg What surprised him was Just beyond that was the next day's egg. A little smaller. Not fully developed. And then beyond that was an even smaller egg until you get all the way back to a little embryo. And he said, I just always thought, you know, each day the chicken makes an egg and there it is. But the Lord used that illustration to show him this, to say, George, when your life is laid open before me, will I see tomorrow's egg The reality is, we don't know when Jesus is coming back for the church. We don't know if we're guaranteed tomorrow. But we're called to live like he's coming, but we're called to lead like he's not. Be ready, absolutely. And so Paul is telling the church about these things, and he's trying to bring them back to this place of understanding how to live courageously and contagiously in the earth. How many of you remember when... Your kids were little if you had children, and, and the first time you ever called a babysitter to to come and watch your kids. I can remember clearly, uh, because it wasn't just the first time. It was the first several times. This was the routine. Somebody that was absolutely capable and qualified, or we would have never called them to begin with, would come over to our house, and, uh, and they would be ready to watch our kids so that Day and I could go out, and we could enjoy an evening or whatever, but then what would happen is we would get to the door, and... and When they got there, we would have like a couple of pages of instructions written down. You know, like front and back. These are all the things you... know. we're only going to be gone for two and a half hours, but here's two and a half pages of instructions for how to take care of our precious baby. Maybe we were the only first-time parents that did that to people, but... And then we'd get to the door, and we'd go to leave, and we'd stand at the door, and we'd rehearse everything with them. Now, Val can say amen, because she had to deal with that. You know, she watched our girls when they were little, and... And, and it was, this is our baby. This is our baby. So we go through all the instructions, and we're standing at the door. And I know they had to be thinking, just leave. Just leave. I got it. Just leave. But we go through everything. The reason I tell you that and get that picture in your mind is because that's what I think Paul is doing here at the end of chapter 5. He's just written this letter to the church. He said a lot. We've talked about a lot for seven weeks now. And he comes to the end of chapter 5, and he's standing at the door I mean, Timothy's ready to run with the letter, and, and Paul's like, wait, 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 i got to tell him about this. i, I got to tell I got one more thing. No, hey, don't forget, and he just peppers them with all of this information, and so we're going to look at some of that information today, and as we do, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you about one or two of these things. I'm going to give you so many things here that there's no way you're going to take it all and, and just process it all and apply it to your life, but I believe the Holy Spirit will speak to us in this moment. And what Paul wants is a church that reflects the glory of God. What Paul wants is a church, which we read about in chapter one, whose testimony has gone everywhere. And what we ought to want is a life that has a testimony that goes everywhere. And so I want to invite you to just ask the Holy Spirit as we dive into the word to speak to you about some of these things that define the characteristics of a contagious church. Let's start reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 12. It says, "Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them In the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Here's the first little nugget of truth that Paul wants to remind the church. He says, honor those in authority. Honor those in spiritual authority. You know, one of our core core behaviors as a church that we try to model, and we try to speak into the life of this church, is a culture of honor. I don't have to tell you this, but have you noticed that, that honor is a, a lost characteristic in our society today? We've become dishonorable of all things, and, and I won't jump on any soapboxes, but just to give you a point of reference, here, football season is starting again, and all the discussion is going on about those who are uh, not wanting to stand to honor the flag. And, and I'll, just, I'll just say th- this about any issue like that, whenever the... the resource that we leverage to teach a lesson is dishonor, you've lost your message. I don't care what you're trying to communicate. If you use dishonor to teach a lesson, you don't have any credibility. You don't have a platform to stand on. And so we try to create a culture of honor in the church. It was illustrated for me so powerfully this week. I'm so glad to have uh, Nancy Miller here this morning in the service and and her friends here with her, this week I had the privilege of officiating the funeral service for Nancy's husband, Steve Miller. It was an honor for me to do that. And as we left here and we went over to the, to the graveside and, and we pulled in to the cemetery, already standing stoically in attention was Steve's former unit, the 193rd. Air National Guardsmen. They were standing there in full regality, in honor, motionless. And though they were motionless, I want to promise you, I was moved. Just to drive up. Boy, my palms got sweaty. Just, it sent chills down my spine. Just seeing that, it was, they were honoring him. They were saying in that moment without speaking that this is a man worthy of honor. It's powerful when we see honor displayed. That's what Paul was trying to tell the church. Honor is powerful, so make sure you get this thing right. You know, It was mentioned earlier in the service, but on September 10th, we're going to celebrate Grandparents' Day. Now, I know Hallmark hasn't made that as big a deal as Mother's Day and Father's Day, and, and it might get overlooked by a lot of folks, but we anticipate it every year, and the reason is because we look for opportunities to show honor. We want to, we want to honor all the grandparents in the church on that Sunday. And so we've set aside a day to be intentional about bringing honor to whom honor is due. You know, we're just another month away from October. And October in this church has been uh, designated as Pastor Appreciation Month. I want to tell you, as your pastor, I never take for granted honor that people give me. I I never take that lightly lightly. Because I recognize it's a heavy responsibility that God has put on my shoulders to be a spiritual leader in the house. And Paul is saying, look at it again. He says we should honor those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, who admonish you. Hold them in high regard, in love. Why? Because they have uh, a lot of degrees behind their name? No. Because they have a lot of influence in the community? No. Because they had a lot of tenure and they've done this for a long, long time? No. That's not the reason that we honor them. He said honor them because of their work. Because of their work. We honor people for the office that they hold and for the work that we do. And then he says this in verse 13b. He says live in peace with each other. Now some commentators would say this is another admonition and it's separate from this. And it may be, it's certainly applicable. But I think it might still be tied to this thing of honor. He's talking about relationships with leaders. And he says, live at peace. I want to just tell you from my own personal experience and observation, there is nothing that will mar the message and the integrity of the church faster than when there is disunity between leadership and the church. We, we've all seen it before. We've all experienced it. You know, in, in 16 years of youth ministry, I, you know, I've learned kids will just be straight up honest with you. And you can always tell based on how the teenagers talk about the leaders in the church. You can always tell what kind of family they live in. You can always tell which moms and dads cook up the preacher and eat him for lunch every Sunday. That's the dinner conversation, and you can tell because it's reciprocated in their sons and daughters. So Paul is saying, be at peace. And let me just say this, and I've said this before, and we'll say it again. The the desire in the church is not that we all have 100% agreement on how things should be done, the ways they should be done, and when things should be done, because that's not possible. If you think it's possible, try it in your home. Try it with your kids. Where should we eat, kids? Chaos. Right there. You want ice cream or broccoli? It's, it's unrealistic to think that everybody would see things the same way. That's not the goal. But the goal is to have a spirit of agreement. A spirit of agreement is not just a yes man... Or a yes woman. A spirit of agreement is a spirit that sees the vision and believes by the power of the Holy Spirit and the leading God. We can do this. We can do this. And so Paul is talking to this young church who no doubt, their ministry is expanding. They're growing. They don't have a lot of experience. Paul put leaders in charge of the church before he left. And he tells them, he says, be at peace with one another. It's important that you live at peace with one another. Creating a culture of honor. And then he says this. Look, look at the next part of the scripture. Verse 14. He says, now, now we urge you. Now see, this is different. He started off saying, I ask you, brothers and sisters. But now, he says, now I need to urge you about some things. Now we urge you, brothers and sisters. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. So he, he, he speaks here. He urges them about how to deal with four different types of members in the church. He says, you, you got you to know what to do because all these people are in your church. And they're in every church, by the way. They're in this church this morning. He said, you got to know how to deal with these. I want to urge you first and foremost to warn those who are idle and disruptive. And I don't think you can separate the two. He said idle and disruptive. See, what had happened was some of the church members, as I mentioned earlier, had gotten so wrapped up in the expectation that Jesus was coming that they had stopped working. Let let me just back up a little bit to verse 11 of chapter 4. This is why Paul says to them, In verse 4, he said, you should work with your hands just as we told you. He said that because there were people in the church that weren't working anymore. And this isn't the first time he told them because he says, you should work with your hands just as we told you. So apparently when he was there preaching, they had this attitude. So now he writes to them in 1 Thessalonians and says, hey, we told you when we were there, you need to work. Don't be idle. Well, they didn't get the message. So he writes 2 Thessalonians, and in 2 Thessalonians, he, he goes back to this same point quickly. Let me just show you this verse in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. He's telling them for the fourth time now, once in person, once in chapter 4, again in chapter 5, now in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 6, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, not asking, not urging, I'm commanding you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching that you received from us. Skip down to verse 11. He says, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. If if we... If we are the redeemed of the Lord, if the spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives on the inside of us, then we ought to be productive. We ought to be the best employee on on the team. We ought to be the most uh, motivated worker at our job. We ought to to let the, the light and the nature and the character of Christ shine through us. And Paul is saying, you guys are doing damage to the church. And I've told you four times, so now I'm commanding the church. If these people refuse to work, if they insist on living off everybody else and, and, and not honoring God with their health and, and wealth and resources, then, then just avoid them. That's strong. That's really strong. Now, obviously, Paul's not talking about people that, are, that are, have lost their health or are not able to work, people that are uh, disabled. He, he's not talking about that. He's talking about people that are marring the name of Jesus because of the way that they're living their lifestyle. Charles Spurgeon said this. He was the prince of preachers, one of the greatest preachers to ever proclaim the gospel. He said this, the most likely man to go to hell is the man who has nothing to do on earth. He said, idle people tempt the devil to tempt them. If I throw myself down in idleness, Like an old piece of iron, I must not wonder that I grow rusty with sin. You know, the New Living Bible translates Proverbs 16, 27 with these words, Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Now, I'm going to just tell you, maybe the most spiritual application that some of you could take away from this is to just get busy. To understand that the reason that you're trapped in sin is because you're bored because you don't feel purpose, you don't feel vision, because you don't have a reason to get up and honor God with your life, and you should not be surprised that you grow rusty with sin. And we have a responsibility as the church not to stand up here on a platform and and call people out by name. That's not what Paul was endorsing. Paul was talking about relationship. Paul was talking about iron sharpening iron. One brother encouraging another, when he said these words, he said, church, we are to warn those who are idle and disruptive. We have an obligation here. Paul says, I don't want you to forget that. So he gives them this piece of advice. Now look at the latter part of verse 14 here in 1 Thessalonians 5. The next part, the next group he talks about, he says, encourage the disheartened. <laughs> encourage the disheartened. And I tell you, one of the main reasons that Paul wrote this letter was to encourage the church. It's our responsibility to encourage the disheartened. If you just flip through the pages of this short little letter, you see back in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul said these words. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. That was, that was Paul's model that they followed. He said, when we were with you, we encouraged you, we comforted you, we urged you to live lives worthy of the gospel. Then, in chapter 3, verse 2, he's, again, he's encouraging the church. What did he do? He said in verse 2, he said, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ. Why? To strengthen and encourage you in the faith. He wanted to encourage them. Then in chapter 4, verse 18, it says these words. Paul is, again, he's encouraging the church because they were, they were dismayed. And we talked about this last week. Over those that have died before the Lord would come. Paul said, listen... When the, when the Lord comes for the church, the dead in Christ will rise first. We're going to meet him in the clouds. But look at verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Then you get down to verse 11 of chapter 5. Paul has just finished describing the second coming of the Lord. And what a day it's going to be that the Lord is going to come and people aren't going to be ready. The Bible says he's going to come like a thief in the night. and People are hearing this message and reading this letter and they're going whoa. Then Paul says, wait a minute. God has not appointed us for wrath. Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Paul is reminding the church to encourage the disheartened. They're here. They're always here. They may still lift their hands. They may still sing the songs. They may even say amen, but you can guarantee it. Rest assured, they're here. And Paul says it's our responsibility if we're going to be a contagious church to not just have a loud shout, but to encourage the disheartened. And the beauty of doing that is in understanding that disheartened feelings and discouragement come around, don't they? Have you ever been that one? I know I have I know there's been some times where I felt Discouraged Thank God I don't feel that way every day Thank God I'm feeling pretty good right now Preaching about it But the reality is it comes around And when I feel discouraged and and heavy hearted It's a blessing to know that somebody else Understands That the church's responsibility Is to encourage One another And then Paul tells him in the next part of verse 14 He says help the weak. Don't just encourage the disheartened. help the weak. A better translation of that would literally be: cling to those who are weak. Cling to them. In other words, don't, don't let them go. He's referring to those people that are weak in their faith. And they're in every church. They just struggle. It, you know, some people, it seems like, man, they're just as steady as the day is long. They just, they're here. Week in, week out, they always seem to be in a good mood, everything seems to be going well, and you just kind of wonder if they're drinking different water than you. You're like, what? (laughs) Did I get a different brand of Christianity than them? Because they always seem to have it together. But at the other end of the spectrum, there's some folks that they're just weak in their faith. It's not an insult, it's just a reality. The Bible says we grow from faith to faith, so wherever you are is a good starting point. Let's just move in the right direction. But there are some that are weak. And they become discouraged, and they believe God one day, and then they don't believe Him the next day, and, and they want you know, to sign up and serve one day, and then they're gone the next month, and, and they just, they're weak in their faith, and they just vacillate back and forth in and out of the church, and in and out of love for Jesus. What are we supposed to do about those people? I'll tell you what we often want to do. We get frustrated. Oh, hey, you can't count on them. Right? But the Bible says we ought to cling to them. Make it hard for them to slip through the cracks. Don't just ask them to do something. Ask them to do it with you. Don't just ask them to meet you somewhere. Pick them up. Bring them. Cling to them. He says, cling to those who are weak. Make a deliberate attempt to tie them into the family of God so that they cannot escape our love. There are some weak Christians that are friends with you. And I would would challenge you to apply this to your heart. Say, What can I do to cling to them? To not just pray for them when I think about them and hope that they come around. No, cling to them. Then he says this in the latter part of verse 14 and be patient with everyone. Paul's standing at the door, and the letter's almost over, but he, he's just rolling things off the tip of his tongue. Oh, and, and be patient with everyone. Now he's not just talking about the church. Now he stretches things out. He says, I'm not just talking about those in the church. Be patient with everyone, those that are in the family of God and those that are outside the family of God. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible gives us what we call the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, it gives this beautiful description of what love is. And, and of course, when you read that, you you just go, man, I don't measure up. Now, when you read that list, you're going to feel guilty. But when you read that list of what love is in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 13 it starts with these words love is patient it's patient before anything else love is patient you know we live in a world of immediate gratification i mean everything's instant drive through microwave next day shipping everything everything it's it's immediate and if we're not careful that oozes in to our spirit man to our spirit life to where if God doesn't do something right away we we get frustrated if somebody doesn't get on a fast track of maturity and and grow up in the faith we get frustrated. If we start a ministry or a program and it doesn't just come out of the gate blazing hot, we throw up our hands. We're ready to just toss it in and say, forget it. That didn't work. Paul says, be patient with everyone. Think about Noah for a minute. Trying to pastor in 2017. How would he be viewed? Noah preached for 120 years. He didn't have one convert. Nobody, nobody got He made his family get on the boat. Nobody else came. Now, at the end of it all, he saved the human race. But if he was trying to plant a church today, we would have said, no way. You're not, you're, what's his resume? Well, I've preached for 120 years. How'd you do? Well, I started with my eight family members and I ended with my eight family members. (laughs) Paul says, be patient. Be patient. In in 1853, there was a, a denominational mission society that discussed closing down one of their mission stations in Angoli, India because only 10 converts had been won to Christ in 15 years. They made up the single church, which was given the nickname the Lone Star of India. Samuel Smith was on that missions committee. He's the guy that wrote the song, My Country Tis of Thee. He was a member of that missions board. And after their debating about whether they should close down the mission or not because of its unfruitfulness, he felt inspired to write a lyric. And here's what he wrote. Shine on, Lone Star, in grief and tears and sad reverses of the baptized. Shine on amid thy founder's fears. Lone stars in heaven are not despised. The next day, he showed up and he read his verse to the rest of the mission's board. And all of his colleagues unanimously voted in that moment to continue the work. To let the lone star shine on. And it's good they did because of that decision that they made. 30 years later in Angoli, the church had grown from 10 to 15,000 members. We tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in a day, and we underestimate what God can do through us in a year, or in five years, or in ten years. The scripture that comes to mind is Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, and Paul exhorts the church with these words. He says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Don't give up. Don't give up on what God has put in your heart. Don't give up on what God is doing. And don't give up on the body of Christ. Be patient. Be patient with everyone. And you can imagine how much harder it was that he said everyone. Can I remind you that the Thessalonian church was experienced persecution? They were being dealt with harshly in the community. And yet, he says to them, be patient with everyone. Now, he started off saying, we ask you. We ask you to honor those in authority. And then he says, we we urge you. But look at verse 15. As Paul presses a little harder, he says, make sure. Make sure, church, that nobody pays back wrong or wrong but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else can you imagine getting this word if you're living in a church like they were in the capital city of Thessalonica I mean Paul was run out of town they're being persecuted and Paul says now I've given you a lot of advice but you make sure of this Make sure that nobody retaliates. Make sure that nobody responds harshly to those that are treating you wrong. This is is Paul describing the upside down kingdom that Jesus introduced in Matthew chapter 5. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was talking about what it's like to be a part of the kingdom of God. And he he said these words that uh, usually people quote this verse to you when they're being mean. They say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Did you ever notice that how many mean people that don't love Jesus know that verse? (laughs) They're just waiting for you to retaliate so they they can remind you that Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And Paul's saying the same thing to the church, saying, "Don't retaliate." I I know everything in you wants to rise up, but but don't don't retaliate. You know, last night we were out at uh, Steve and Sandy Malus's house. Uh, man, we had a great time out there. They invited several of us out. He had his video projector outside, uh, right by the river, and we were watching a movie out there. We watched Beauty and the Beast. And uh, don't know if you've seen it. Don't really care. Stay with me. Um, in the movie. Gaston, the captain, goes and he leads uh, the townspeople on a hunt to go and find the beast. And uh, he gets there, he shoots the beast. And now the beast is mortally wounded, and Gaston comes in for hand to hand combat. And in a turn of events, all of a sudden, he finds himself being lifted up by the neck and hoisted out over the edge of a cliff. It's a moment in the movie where you're about to decide or discover if. If the man on the inside of the beast is a better man than what we see on the outside. If the curse were to be removed, would he still be a better man? And and Gaston said something to him. And I thought about this text last night as we were watching the movie. Gaston, begging for his life, he says, don't kill me, beast. And in that moment, it's a perfect line. The beast looks at him and he says, I'm not a beast. And he sets him back down. It was a powerful moment to show that if, if the curse were broken off of my life, there's a better man on the inside. And what Paul is saying to the church is, hey, church, the curse has been broken off your life, all right? You're, you're not a brute beast. You're a child of the Most High God. You don't have to stoop to that level. You don't have to live the way that they live. You don't have to go tit for tat and retaliate on the same level. Can I just make an observation, and maybe you'll go with me on this. Can you imagine what kind of revival would break out in America if all of the Christians would just live by verse 15? Can we put that verse on the screen again? I mean, what if, what if all of the, the church just made up their mind to make sure, now think of all of the issues going on in our society, think of all of the hot topics and the debates and the causes and the, and the, the arguments that are taking place, what if we all just made sure that as far as the church was concerned, Nobody paid back wrong for wrong, but we always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. I'm telling you, an unstoppable revival would come to this nation. That scene from that movie last night reminded me of a quote from Marcus Aurelius. He said, the most complete revenge is not to imitate the aggressor. Don't imitate him. Don't imitate him. You're not the curse that was spoken over you. You're better than that. You're more than that in Christ. If anybody could understand what it was like to want to retaliate, it was Paul. He was persecuted more than anybody else. He's been stoned, literally left for dead, been shipwrecked been run out of towns, been persecuted, been called every name, and yet he said, make sure, church, that you don't pay back wrong for wrong. In the next few verses here, as we move to the end, Paul gives some admonitions that are not only right in any circumstance, he says they're God's will. This is God's will for you. Look at verse 16 through 18 with me he says rejoice always pray continually give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus this is God's will for your life rejoice always now what that doesn't mean is be happy all the time be bouncing around be jolly and be giddy and silly no that's not what he's saying if he is saying that, we got real issues, because Paul, who wrote it, nor Jesus, who was perfect, was happy all the time. In fact, it's interesting to note that the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament is this verse, rejoice always. But in the English translation, the shortest verse in the New Testament is John eleven thirty five: 35, Jesus wept. So we have joy and sorrow, the shortest verses in the New Testament. The reality, he was not saying just be happy all the time. What Paul had in mind was probably what he had just said about not reacting wrong, not retaliating to those who do something against you. And and just before this conversation, he was reminding them the Lord is coming. Jesus is coming again. God has not, verse 9, he said God has not appointed us suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord, Jesus Christ. That way, whether we're alive or dead, we're with Christ. So Paul was saying, hey, you can rejoice in that. Even in the worst situation, in the worst report, against the worst odds, you still have a reason to rejoice. Why? Because we have a blessed hope. And he comes back to this theme of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Jesus. He may very well have been thinking of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you're blessed when people insult you and persecute you, when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul is not saying you should always be happy, you should always have a smile on your face. Paul is saying no matter how bad it gets, you've got a reason to praise God. That's why in the midst of a Philippian prison in Acts 16, with his back bleeding and his feet in shackles, the Bible says that at midnight Paul lifted his voice and he worshipped and he praised God. That's why the Bible says in Acts that the apostles, after they were beaten publicly, they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. It was an attitude that understood the hope that is to come. And the key, the key to it all, is the last phrase in verse 18. He says, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. We rejoice. We give thanks. Not not give thanks for all circumstances. Again, he's, he's not saying be happy about everything, be thankful for everything. He says in the midst of it, sometimes in spite of it, give thanks, rejoice. And then verse 17 there, he says, pray continually. Another translation says, pray without ceasing. Never stop praying. Now that doesn't mean we walk around just muttering prayers all the time. The word that's translated without ceasing is the same word that was used to describe a persistent cough. So like a persistent cough, you're not coughing constantly, but it just keeps happening. It's consistent. That's the word picture for... Praying without ceasing, always just lifting your voice to prayer, not shutting yourself away for a 24-hour prayer session, but just like a persistent cough, it's always there. Another way that that word was used to describe uh, something without ceasing was when a military would attack a city, and maybe they didn't take the city the first time, but then they they would attack again, and then they would attack again, and they would keep advancing against the city. Without ceasing until finally they prevailed. And that's what Paul says your prayer life should be like. You just keep coming and you keep coming and you keep coming until you've prevailed in prayer. Pray without ceasing. And he gives this threefold charge. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks to God. And he says, this is God's will for you. You know, there's so many people that struggle with the will of God. Questions asked maybe more than any other. What's God's will for my life? Well, I don't want to oversimplify your life, but let me tell you, there's a good clue in the last part of that verse. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Sure, we're going to struggle with the details, but let me tell you, we find the will of God for our life in Christ Jesus. Jesus. If you read all this stuff that I've just, I've just read to you, that Paul's standing at the door saying, oh, tell him this, and don't forget to write that down, and oh yeah, tell him about this. If you, if you go away with all that information, you go, wow, this is hard. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I can assure you, you're not. If you overlook the sufficiency of God in all of this, then you've missed the point that Paul is trying to make. Paul is not saying that you need to Just work on this yourself. What Paul is saying is that God is going to do this in and through your life. And he is going to make us a contagious church. That's why the very next verse, verse 19, Paul says these words. Look at it with me, 19 through 22. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all and hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. Now obviously, and we will not have time to go back to it, but there was some false prophecy going on in the church because the Thessalonians were all confused about the coming of the Lord, about what happens to those who die. They were, they were all confused, but Paul wanted to be careful. That, that well, Here's what he's saying in this moment. He's saying, hey, Thessalonians, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Look, there's people that get it wrong sometimes, but you need the Spirit to be in operation in the church. If you're going to be everything that God wants you to be, if you're going to do the things that God wants us to do, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. Look, I know some people got it wrong. I know you got some uh, people out there that are saying, uh, giving some heresy, but listen, don't quench the Spirit. Don't become nervous about those that get it wrong, that all of a sudden you don't leave any room in the church for the Holy Spirit to operate. You know what I've found to be true? That the Holy Spirit gifting in the church is a lot like riding a bicycle. What I mean by that is I can talk to you about riding a bicycle. You can read a book about riding a bicycle. You can watch YouTube videos about how to ride a bicycle. But you do not know how to ride a bicycle until you get on one and start pedaling. And usually when somebody does that, they fall a few times. That's the way it is with the gifts of the Spirit. There are so many people in the church that are afraid to let God use them in the gifts of the Spirit because they think if they fall, it's like an unpardonable sin. And Paul is saying, no, it's not. Look, you're going to get it wrong sometimes, but don't quench the Spirit. Don't just get rid of the gifts of the Spirit because somebody might have said something out of line or maybe they prophesied and it didn't come true. Paul says, don't treat prophecy with contempt. Then he he gives them a word of warning. Test the prophecy. He says, test them all. Hold on to the good. Chew the meat. Spit out the bones. Don't quench the spirit. Why? Because we need the Holy Spirit. And as he ends this letter, he brings it all back. He brings it all back to center. He says, this is how it's going to happen. And I want to speak this last part over you as as an apostolic decree that Paul made over this church. I want to pray over you. So I want to ask you, would you stand to your feet with me? As Paul moves into verse 23 through 24, he brings back into the spotlight who it is that we're depending on in this moment. And he says these words, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. You know what we need to be a contagious church? We need God himself. God of peace to sanctify us. To sanctify us. The whole there may be just just one thing from all of this message, just one thing that the Holy Spirit has just put his finger on in your life. And he's dealt with you about it. Why? What's he doing? He's sanctifying you. He wants you to look more like Jesus because Jesus is contagious. And he wants your life in this church to be contagious. The Holy Spirit is working. The God of peace is sanctifying you through and through. Now, I want to ask you right now to just lift your hands up toward heaven and receive this prayer. I want to speak this over your life. I want to use Paul's words, but I want them to be ours today as I declare these over the church. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Do it, Lord, by your Spirit. Do it now, by your Holy Spirit. Sanctify the church. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I just speak over the life of this church, not blameless, perfect living, but God, a purity of heart, a purity of heart, a right motive, a heart of integrity. That is found blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, make us a contagious church. Let us reflect your glory. Let us reflect your character. Let many who know us come to know you. In Jesus' name. Now church, I want to end with with these words. You can look at me for a moment. We're going to pray a a closing prayer in just a minute. But at the conclusion of this letter, verse 24 that we just read, says to us, the one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Jesus is faithful to call us. And, And I want to emphasize those words because I want you to know that every time we come together in a service like this, I come into this moment with an expectation that Jesus is calling. And so I don't want to miss the opportunity for you to hear His voice and respond. So listen, if you're here today and you're hearing this word and we're talking about the church and what God wants for us, but the truth is you don't even have a relationship with God. You're far from God in your heart. You don't know Him personally and intimately. You're not walking with Him daily. If you don't know God, listen, Jesus is calling today. The one who calls you is faithful. And I just want to give you an opportunity to respond To his calling today. So I'm going to pray one final time. And as I do. I want to open these altars. And let me go a little beyond this. First of all. I want to call you today to salvation. If you're here and you don't know the Lord. Please don't, don't leave. Without hearing and responding. To his faithful call. Because he is faithful. And he will call. So long as we have the opportunity. Paul gives this invitation on the heels of a powerful message, an exhortation to the church that says, Jesus is coming. He's coming. So yes, he's faithful to call, but we don't know how many more times we'll have to hear it. If you don't know the Lord, before you leave, I want to invite you to step out from where you are while I pray this closing prayer and to find a place at this altar to say, God, I hear you calling me. I'm coming to you today. I give you my heart and my life. And I want to open these altars for one other group. If you're here today, maybe you're feeling like you're the weak one in the house. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling like the one that's discouraged in the house. God has called us, and we just read it today, to encourage you, to lift up the weak, to cling to you today. If you're feeling heavy in your heart because of circumstances or your spirit life or maybe in your physical body, Give us the opportunity before you leave today to cling to you in prayer and to lift you up. I'm going to pray a closing prayer. And as I do, if you want to come and find a place at this altar, there are men and women that are coming now and they want to pray for you. They want to pray with you. Come now as we pray. Father, thank you so much for this word that you've spoken through the Apostle Paul to this church in Thessalonica and God to us. Thank you, God, that you've positioned us in the middle of an intersection right here in Wrightsville where we work, where we live with our online social network God, you've positioned us and you've called us to let a message ring out from us everywhere God, make this a contagious church make this a powerful church God, do a work in us so that when people leave they leave in awe of Jesus our Lord and Savior. God, we thank you for your presence today. Lord, be with us in the fellowship as we have our Connecting 60 lunch with those that are coming to learn more of the church. God, as we come back tonight to get into your word, refresh our hearts in your word. God, we give you praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen. God bless you today. Have a wonderful afternoon.